Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan bringing you the SideQuest podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building, where we occasionally take SideQuest because, frankly, that's how conversations work. We are on our second episode, and we got some great feedback from the audience, and so we've been implementing some of those things, and we're going to do this first one now where we dive into what we read and a brief synopsis of the plot before we go straight into discussing our thoughts on it. So Slava, take it away. Yes. So we read Omni's Last Case, which is a short story by Stephen King. Um, it's actually a favorite of the author from the collection that it's found in, which is uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Omni's Last Case is a Raymond Chandler pastiche. For those of you who don't know who Raymond Chandler is, he is a writer from the 30s that wrote hard-boiled detective novels. So this this story follows a private investigator named Clyde Umney on the last day in what he knows as the real world. While it begins as any other ordinary day in the 1930s Los Angeles, Umney soon learns it is anything but that, and that his new client is a crime fiction writer in the real, real world who created him and now wants to switch places with him to escape his world and the trauma of losing his wife and child. As soon as Omni wakes up, he discovers that his life, as he knows it, knows it, has fallen apart. All his lifelong friends and associates are abruptly departing in one fashion or another for reasons ranging from winning the lottery to getting terminal cancer. And many of them, to his surprise, express disdain towards Omni in place of farewells. To add to Omni's vexation, his favorite diner closes, his secretary quits, and his landlord repaints the dingy office building with bright, cheerful colors. While he is brooding in his office, the uninvited client, named Samuel D. Landry, comes in and sits in Omni's office. In their brief but world-altering conversation, it is revealed that after Landry suffered the loss of his wife and child and a severe case of shingles, Landry decided to immerse himself in the world of his creation. Landry demonstrates his power in and over Omni's world by stopping time, altering space and matter. And then he explains to a helpless Omni that he intends to take his place. An unknown power, assumingly the same power that brought the author into this world, forces Omni to take on the writer's identity in 1994. Quickly, he finds himself in Sandry's house, living Sandry's life. As he adjusts to his new existence, he finds this real world dull and inadequate compared to his life in his world, which he admits was ultimately a creation of the writer's mind and not actually real. Omni decides to figure out how to return to his own world and take revenge on his creator. That, Jonathan, is uh, Omni's last case in 35 seconds. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think in today's world, short stories are less appreciated than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of why we wanted to start here with short stories. It's it's easier for us to dive into, but it's also a look backward to say, what are the short stories of the past that really stood out? And King, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know more about him than I do, but he got his start with the book Carrie, right? Correct. Okay. So that was the 80s? 74. 74. Uh <laughs> Time was different back then, and I'm not yeah. that old. I lived through the 90s. I was born in the 80s, but I lived through the 90s. But yeah, there was something about this writing that felt veteran to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which I liked. And so when you when you mentioned it to me that it was this old Raymond Chandler, Chandler pastiche, I frankly didn't know anything about that. But even though I didn't know anything about it, I could feel that this writing was veteran and weathered and established in a really good way. Yeah, absolutely. And he's in his notes on the collection. Like I said, this is a collection of short stories from Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And at the end of each book, he usually has like an epilogue or a, or a, a note section where he kind of describes the process of, you know, writing the short stories. And for Omni's last case, he said that, first of all, Raymond Chandler was uh, someone that got him through, you know, a time in his life. He, he was a lonely kid. He was reading and just devouring this. Mm. So this pastiche is kind of, I guess, an, an, you know, as pastiches are, an homage to Raymond Chandler. But uh, he never had the need for this sort of a voice until he wanted to ask the question, what relationship do I have to the worlds and the characters I create? And this story came out of it. And he, he also says in other uh, notes or lectures that I've heard that short story is more difficult than a long novel because you can, you can fudge a little bit in a long novel and continuity error, errors yeah. might get missed by a reader in a long novel, but you have to hone in whatever you're trying to say in a short story. You have to be so tight with your language so you can end it well. You can keep the reader from beginning to end reading it. The ending is satisfying, whatever that ending might be. And this was a pretty, pretty good. I, I like the ending of this one, too. It Yes, the ending. Um, so right at the beginning, there's just I want I do want to talk about pastiches. Uh, pastiches, past pastiches are an interesting thing. And I want to get back to those. But first, as I was reading the story, when this uninvited customer and client comes in to talk to Omni, I started and and it's based partly on the assumption of nightmares and dreamscapes. I didn't, haven't read as much Stephen King as you have, but I'm like, this guy's the devil. This is this is a devil or a god, like preferably it was the devil because this person comes in and is unfazed by the main character. He's almost got a he's given. And I think it was this line. He's like he had a scent on him that I'd never smelled before, but I knew it. And it's like, mm. oh, well, that's to me. It was like nightmares and dreamscapes. All right. It's probably the devil. Turns out it's not. But um, it was my first thought when this being comes in before it even keeps going, because, you know, as we read stories, we make assumptions. That's part of the beauty of reading a story. The writer writes something in a way to purposefully draw your attention to moments or details. Uh, and then, you know, big reveals later. But I when I don't know if you can hark back to the first time that you uh, read this piece but like what was your understanding of who this being was that walked in and then i want to go back to pastiches yeah well when i read when i first read this i read it when it came out and i think it came out in 92 or 93 so when i read this i was 12 years old wow 12 years old so i i devoured stephen king when i was a kid now when i say devoured i mean short stories i read probably a a good portion of the stand needful things it that that's really it for the, his novels, mm-hmm. but I devoured his short stories. I think he has four or five collection, maybe a little bit more now. So I would read and reread those. I can't tell you what I thought as a twelve-year-old about his last That's case, fair. but when I reread it this time, and when I reread it again about two years ago, what I enjoyed about it is exactly what 
King uh, meant me to enjoy about it. And I only read those notes this time around. Mm-hmm. So th- th- that's an interesting, uh, you know, tidbit for how wh- what was going on in my brain. So asking the question, what relationship does the author have with his characters? Why, why does a character do the things he or she does? And, you know, it's a probably a conversation for a whole episode in itself. It is. Well, that, yeah. that, 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 that's what came to me the second time I read it, both times. It was, that was kind of in the back of my head. I'm like, it's interesting. What, what of himself does the author put into this character? So on that note, you and I had a community friend back in the day, and I, I, maybe you remember him saying this, um, you know, Hamlet doesn't know that Shakespeare exists unless Shakespeare writes Hamlet meets a man named Shakespeare. Right. And it's this I and I think that there's honestly metaphysical implications here uh, about that. We won't. That's not what the podcast is about. So we're not going to get into it. But I've always thought about that, where it's like the the character doesn't know the author. Unless the author reveals himself. Right. Absolutely. So I I, I did. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this um, this short story. So it was a good pick on your on your account. Um, <clears throat> and one th- another thing. And then I, I really will go back to pastiches, folks. Uh, is I love old lingo. I, I love linguistics, not in a deeply nerd kind of way, because I don't um, I don't have that. Uh, I don't want to say level of comprehension, but I don't have. It's just not that. That's not why I love it. I love it because it's it's fascinating to me and I find communication fascinating. And so like the first i don't know the first few pages are like very early on in the story he goes yeah i gave her the old slap and tickle and i was like i've never heard it called that before yeah yeah <laughs> so you then, can say you you've loved these the the lingo of uh, the 1930s since hector was a pup yeah since hector was a pup yeah just all these like, like one-liners this, yeah and you're like oh that's a weird way but the, but you know exactly what it means yeah it's just an old phrase um he didn't have to tell me that the old slap and tickle was sex. I knew that from calling it the old slap and tickle. I don't know yeah. how I knew that. And it's just something about the way that language has developed over time is just absolutely riveting to me because it's it's a it's almost a snapshot of a moment in time of how those people communicated. Now, this isn't a um, I want to just clarify, this isn't a uh, a moral judgment on on what was being talked about, but rather a, a comment on linguistics and um common vernacular for the 1930s yeah uh, that's what made the the story so enjoyable and as king sometimes does he mixes like humorous things with serious you know conversation so in between like the these little vignettes of the day where omni's life has fallen apart and he knows something terrible is happening. He just has his gut feel before he even before he meets Landry. Omni knows something's going on, and it's not good. But in between those things, like you have these little internal dialogues that the characters having that are very humorous. Just the the way he interacts with people, it's funny. It has like this. Um, yeah, help me with the word. Like there's a word for this that I'm trying to describe. Uh, well, it's not. McKay, macabre, macabre. I can't even pronounce it. Macabre. I really like the word macabre. Uh, it's a French word, I'm pretty sure. Macabre. Um, I should just slaughter. <laughs> to all of our French listeners, 
because uh, we're, we're, we're big in French. Un, deux, trois, slaughtering your language with my barbaric tongue. Um, what were you trying to say? <laughs> well, the, the humor, there's a, there's like the seesaw in this uh, story where there's there's these humorous things, and I, mm-hmm. I couldn't think exactly how juxtaposition? he Juxtaposition? Yeah, this juxtaposition of humor and dark things. Like the character's world is coming undone. Oh, yeah, but, juxtaposition. That's that's yeah. what I would use. Uh, yeah. Also, we're going to get to know each other as the podcast goes on. Not you and me, but like us in the audience. Uh, sometimes I have to talk just to figure out what I have, how to put what I've been thinking into words. And usually that takes the form of humor. And then I have to backtrack and go, what was I talking about? So uh, so that's a little fun, fun little tidbit for you there. That's um, why these podcasts are three hours long. Because... Oh, my. No, no. I've got friends who listen to them that are super long like that. Now, granted, I guess I don't have anything to say because I'll go through a thick double C's book um, in audiobook form that's 50 hours. So I guess I don't have a whole lot to say to someone who sits and listens to a three-hour podcast when I'm willing to trounce through a 200-hour epic tomes of four different books and still waiting for book five, Stormlight Archives. Anyway, Brandon Sanderson. Remember, I'm not the biggest fan. I'm just a fanboy because, yeah. you know. Yeah. I well, I, I made sure anything. in the description notes to put down that you're the second biggest fan of Sanderson. Uh, mm. Clearly, they was that in the first episode. Oh, as, a, as, a, as another side quest here, uh, in the last episode, I said King of Endor when I was referring to Tolkien, and I also tied myself with being a big Tolkien fan. And then when I was going through and we were editing it, I realized how much of an idiot I am because it's the Witch King of Angmar and not the King of Endor. And so all of you real fans out there, uh, Mazeltov, to you, no one had to tell me this. I caught it beforehand, but then one of my buddies was like, you're a big fan, huh? What are you talking about? Because that's not real. <laughs> I went, I know. Thank you for the feedback. Yeah. I did ask you for feedback. Well, so, at least you didn't say when Mr. and Mrs. Beaver meet Lucy on the way to Mordor. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I uh, I love Captain when Kirk. Aslan comes in to uh, <laughs> talk to Captain John Luke Picard about the latest Quidditch tournament. I'm My favorite get... chapter. I'm <laughs> in Patrick Ruffus's <laughs> trilogy on Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm. It's uh, there's a lot of things I could say about that, and it's pretty funny. I'm just going to stop myself because sometimes I use self-control. Pastiches. I want to get back to pastiches uh, yep. because it's an interesting. I didn't know that this is what it was called because you know what a parody is. It's you know kind of making fun of a, a work mm-hmm. and mocking it. But a pastiche is an homage where you're imitating rather than mocking. And I, I think that this is an interesting line to walk, honestly, because for one person that might be always making fun of it and to another person that go. No, we know the author. We've read a bunch of his work. He really enjoys it. Do you have thoughts on how someone could write a pastiche instead of a parody? And like, when have you crossed from pastiche to parody? Do you have any thoughts on on that? That's an interesting question. I think when... Hmm. It's tough, right? So uh, to give you a parody example, Spaceballs was a parody of Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. Where... They're literally just making fun of this thing because it's over the top. It's campy. It's just very blatant in its we're Star Wars, but we're not Star Wars. You know, you just know because you go way over the top. Well, in the space balls. What? Space yeah. balls. Yeah. Yeah. All of, Star it. Wars. All of it. Yeah. All of it. So that's I think if you purposefully go over the top, 
But I think that doing pastiches is a very nuanced thing. I, I well, Frankly, people don't do it anymore because we don't have the attention span for it. And trying to write in the voice of someone else is difficult. Yeah. And you, you hit the nail on the head. I'm glad. Yeah, this is cool. Because I, I think the over-the-top campy stuff, that's where it can turn into parody. And then there's two kind of parodies. Parodies is to outright mock or a parody just to kind of maybe maybe gently poke fun at something that you admire. Elbow the guy next to you through the fourth yeah. wall. Yeah. So another book we're going to be doing for the for the, for our first five episodes is well short story Neil Gaiman's uh, Study in Emerald, which is mm-hmm. a pastiche of a Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet. Mm-hmm. So, and there you have some over the top things, right? But that was on purpose, like, and we'll talk about it sure. when that episode uh, when that episode comes along. Yeah, but so it, sometimes it can be just a tiny bit over the top because you're playing around in that world and. If it's a little bit over the top, it doesn't necessarily have to be mocking. Just like in Neil Gaiman's uh, uh, pastiche of uh, Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. uh, a study in Scarlet. But sometimes that over the top is just um, just because you, you're playing around with it. That's your story. You're doing an homage, but you want to do it your way. The so original fan fiction. The yeah, original it's a, it's fan very fiction. Nuanced. Right, exactly. So it's, it's nuanced. And I, but I, I, I think people who read, they'll be able to tell. So when I watch Spaceballs, I don't think that the Mel Brooks, Kate's, <laughs> Lucas, like they have some kind of feud or something. I, right, right. I so I, I, I want to stay on this pastiche thing just a little bit longer. I pulled up the Wikipedia and it talks about intertextuality. Um, and it says, illusion's not pastiche. Uh, literally, illusion may refer to another work, but it, it does not reiterate it. Um, but both illusion and pastiche are mechanisms of intertextuality. And intertextuality is when a text's meaning is shaped by another text. So this makes me think of old Greek culture where they would they would go out and they'd have these discourses, and then next week somebody would have an additional discourse, but sometimes it was a cultural slight at the people who had the first discourse, right? And the same thing yeah. developed later, and it made me think, well, this a uh, pastiche uh, story tool is kind of just you add to the zeitgeist and you you hark back to somebody else's writing, you hark back to someone else's style, and you add to the conversation that is this cultural thing. But I, and I think you made a good point there, where it's it requires someone to have a breadth and width of knowledge in literature of well, at least that specific style, but at minimum to know, oh hey, this is kind of a look back at so-and-so you know yeah very interesting point because specifically because of the greek connection in my research about pastiches because i was like okay let me let me dive in a little bit more because i know what a pastiche is but there's always more to learn mm-hmm. so what i what i found in my research specifically of this uh, short story is it also is an example uh, of metalepsis and what metalepsis is it's a greek word it means it's a figure of speech in which a word or phrase from figurative speech is used in a new context. For example, I've got to catch the worm tomorrow. Well, what does that mean? Well, the early bird catches the worm is a kind of familiar maxim to us, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this new thing, this metalepsis, I've got to catch the worm tomorrow is referring to that maxim. And the subject is compared to the bird tomorrow speaker will awake early to achieve whatever he wants to achieve 
Mm-hmm. So you, you can see these things in Omni's last case where he uses some old lingo, but also in different ways. Like since Hector was a pup. Who's Hector? Who's Hector? But obviously it's been a long time because you're assuming Hector's as, as, as old as, you know, at least he's old, a, he's he's older. Old. Yeah. yeah. Is Hector a... actually a dog or is Hector yeah. a child? Well, yeah. was a child. Yeah. 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 That that's what do you say? Meta Metalepsis. Metalepsis. Yeah. That's interesting. I would I would I would enjoy doing an experiment where you take a bunch of maxims and then you write the the follow up maxim to 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 be the metalepsis of that. Yeah. Like I gotta catch the worm tomorrow. That's see, that's the type of stuff where similar to what you said, go back to the slap and tickle. It's like you know what it means. Since Hector was a pup, you know what it means. Time has passed and it's been a while. Um a couple of years ago, I think is uh is one another one that he references here yeah so um any final thoughts my final thoughts are i enjoyed the serious and like light-hearted seesaw of the story i think king routinely combines comical and serious aspects and he does it effectively you know in the books i read and the short stories i read he does it effectively but here it's very effective because again omni his world has fallen apart and yet in the middle of everything even how he reacts to some of this stuff there's these funny lines. It's just, it's, it's hard to yeah, explain yeah. unless you read it. So I, I like that about it. I was interested in the, in the questions that King intended to bring up. Like what relationship does the author have with his creations? And again, the pastiche element of it made me want to read uh, Raymond Chandler, at least one book, just to kind of yeah. get the feel for it. I think that that's super fair. And this is one of the things I like about literature is, and well, let me start with this. I think one of the worst things that's ever happened in the state of the world from beginning of creation till now is the burning of the Library of Alexandria. We lost a bunch of knowledge that existed from the ancient world in that fire. And the reason it's bad is like there were things that I, I want to call it secret knowledge, but that's just kind of colloquial. There was knowledge that was in there that was wrong, but it taught you how that culture thought, which is important. It doesn't matter if they were truthful or objective or scientifically correct. It taught you how they thought, and that gives you an insight into who they are anthropologically, what that culture was or who Absolutely. Was, whatever. So this is why it was one of the, the, the worst things that ever happened. That said, literature of all types, going back as far as you go, whether it's Shakespeare or ancient Mesopotamian tablets with, and this is a good one, I don't know if you've ever read it, is The Richest Man in Babylon, which is a narrative story about how to create wealth. It's fantastic. And it was written on these Mesopotamian tablets. And maybe we'll read it, but I mean, that's got to be a finance episode because it literally is a story about how to make money. Okay. It's fascinating. Interesting. Um, but they, and, and as I dove into it and after I read it, I looked into where, you know, who came up with this it's like no 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 one came up with this this is from ancient mesopotamian tablets that they excavated from the earth it's like oh so people in back in the day were just real smart and knew how to cultivate wealth interesting yeah um yeah that's interesting two quick points book burning is always a crime it's a horrible thing even if you object to what you find in that book yeah like yeah stop no eat the fish spit out the bones that's what we learned in martial arts years ago and i've always stuck to that it's like you can read something that you completely disagree with, and you probably should, and at least you can take the knowledge and either rebuild your argument or go, okay, this is interesting, and then you put it on the shelf, but the but by declaring needing to burn the book and whatever, like you're drawing more attention to it. 
Yeah. It's why uh, some political figures are of the belief that negative attention is uh, better than no attention. And frankly, that's kind of true. So if you just stop talking about them, they like no one they else will away. talk about them either. Right. You you take the power away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point a little earlier, you get to learn how the other side thinks. Mm-hmm. And then to your point, just seconds ago, you can build a better case if you want to argue against it. But you, are, if he yeah. can't represent your enemy's position in such a way where he said, or your opponent's position in such a way where he or she says, yeah, I believe that. And then you argue against that. Mm-hmm. We can't do that if you don't interact with them. Right. Or, your or arguments are weaker. Yeah. Yeah. I would love, and this would be, we'd have to plan this out a little more, but I'd love to go through a wisdom literature section because you're making me think about Sun Tzu and man, there's a lot of stuff that you can pull from Sun Tzu, but it's not really a narrative to, to be discussed or story or world because yeah. he was a general. He's one of the world's greatest generals. Genghis Khan, too. There's just kind of like a bunch of history books, I guess I'd call them, or yeah. slices from history that I think would be interesting to discuss. Um, yeah. We'll have to talk about that, but let's wrap it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Well, what are your three thoughts or three three things or the conclusions? You well, I, I, I talked about I, yeah, I already did it. So not necessarily three thoughts, but just, you know, the burning of Alexandria, books, the power of books, going back and checking people's culture. Yeah, well, specifically with somebody's last case, what are your final thoughts on that? Uh, I had them when you were talking earlier. Let me think a second. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I think I, I would like to read a little more King. I think that more people should do what King did as an experiment. And filmmakers have done this more today because we have the technology. But when you do make a pastiche or an homage, you know, back to some other person who inspired you that you really enjoyed, I think that that's a sign of honor. I think it's a a respect thing. And I think it's drawing people's attention because, look, you and I didn't really know who Raymond Chandler pastiche was. Or sorry, Raymond Chandler was without this short story. Yep. And and there's dozens, hundreds even probably, of authors who are really good and worth reading that people just won't read because they don't know about them. And so if today's authors will give a pastiche or an homage, even a parody, honestly, like something, people go, oh, that's interesting. Where did this come from? And then some of them will go and look at this original piece and you'll re-stir up a love for an older style of writing or storytelling that uh, is currently sitting in the library that is time gathering dust. So I yeah. that that is the biggest piece that I took away from this. Uh, it was entertaining. It was fun. It was enjoyable. It was. Yeah. Um, but that's it for us. Yep. Don't burn books and people born before you are not as dumb as you think. That's true. Thanks for tuning in today, guys. Check back next week for the next episode where we're going to go through Neil Gaiman's Gaiman's. All right. Neil Gaiman's A Study in Emerald. Thank you. Yep. Those are words and that's how you say them. Anyway, have a great time wherever you're listening to this.